In my wrestling and in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence, you won't let go. In the questions, your truth will hold. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled sea.
touch, bringing me closer, your hand, healing what's broken, my prayer, Father, meet me here. My life, for all of your glory, your grace, let it surround me, let faith change the Stronger than each storm. 
Father, we thank you that you are faithful and good. We can trust you. And this morning we come to declare that we do indeed trust you. We are grateful for all of your blessings. We're grateful for who you are. 
and we worship you. Thank you for being present with us in our worship. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others. Thanks to uh, everyone who brought food this morning, and uh, this is not the, the last time we're collecting food, but the, the food pantry shelves are pretty bare, and we are hoping over the course of the next uh, month, as the needs arise, particularly during the holiday season, we want to continue to help folks who are in need. So uh, any contributions you can make, doesn't have to be today, anytime, just bring it by the church office. Also, uh, I just saw a note in the community room foyer that our goal of 250 Operation Christmas Child boxes was exceeded. We had 265. So uh, that's awesome. And uh, we know that that, we pray that that will have a, a great impact on not just the children, but their families and even the, the communities where they live. And uh, also, I want to remind you the prayer vigil ends today at 5 o'clock. There are a few more times this afternoon if you'd like to sign up to come. Uh, before the end, and we're having a closing gathering at 5 tonight. Love to have you be a part of that. We're going to sing together. Opportunity for sharing about what God's doing in our lives through the prayer vigil or other times. And a chance to pray together as well. So uh, that'll be at 5 o'clock this afternoon. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and assist us as we give our tithes and offerings to God who is so good to us. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. 
words remind us that God is with us in every moment, and we recognize that as we come to pray with him. So we ask that uh, as we pray together today, as we bring our burdens, our concerns to God, if you'd like to come and use the altar rails, the place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Father, it is an awesome thing to be able to say with certainty that through all of our experiences, it is well because you are with us. This morning we come and declare that truth. Over the past few weeks, as we have entered into this intensive time of praying together, You've kept your promise to be with us, to hear us, and to answer us in your infinite love and grace. And we ask that you would help us to continue to trust you more and more in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead. Father, let the sign of our trust be evident in our gratitude. Gratitude for blessings that that knock us off our feet. And blessings that gently tug at our uncanny ability to take things in our daily lives for granted. Let us see you through it all. Father, this morning we ask for your gentle care for your children, those who struggle most, who are most vulnerable, most needy in this fallen world. For those who suffer innocently because of cruelty. For for people caught in the crossfire of war and conflict. For people who are hungry and homeless. We pray that you will heal, restore, feed, and clothe all in need. We pray that you will burden us and your people everywhere to feel such compassion. That we beg you to let us be agents of soothing and calm and help and love. Father, we pray this for your church around the world. We pray for for the persecuted church, particularly in northeast Nigeria. For the people who who live in a very dangerous area. They've been attacked. People have been kidnapped very precarious existence. We pray, Father, that they will sense your spirit near in a powerful way. We pray, Father, for the needs right around us. Thank you that you have given us the ability to be agents of of help and healing and, and meeting needs right in our area. We pray that you will continue to help us, especially at this holiday time, to be agents of help, to give food and assistance in every way possible. We pray for wisdom and for resources. Father, we pray for the ministry of churches around us. We pray for the Anchor Baptist Church in Wellsville and and Pastor David Cassiola. We ask that you will bless them and encourage them, and may they be agents of hope and healing. Father, we pray for the needs that we represent here. We pray for all who are grieving, especially as we move into this holiday time, and ask that you will give a special grace of mercy. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health concerns, for Ben King and David Hartley, for Mildred Berry, Doris Esepian, for Blanche Weaver and Tammy Dunmire and Isla Shea, for Sheldon Emerson and Bob Jobert and Laurel Buecher, for Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muecher, for Mike Raybuck, for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, 
Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others on our minds today. May each of them know your healing grace. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your glory among the nations. We pray, Father, that you will continue to work in your church here and throughout the world, that we might be a place of hope and healing and grace and mercy. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one from whom we learned the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 30, verses 8 through 18. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions. Lead this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly, in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found. For taking coals from a hearth, scooping water out of his cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee, will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Please stand and join us as we sing. And children may be dismissed for Children's Church. Still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, be faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend. 
I read about a recent survey that was done of Christians. And uh, the survey had some interesting results about how Christians view what it means to be a Christian. This is what they found out. A few of the, more than four out of five people agreed that the Christian life is well described as trying harder to do what God commands. Being a Christian... More than four out of five, more than 80% of the people surveyed said, being a Christian means trying harder to do what God commands. Two-thirds of these churchgoers said rigid rules and strict standards are a very important part of the life of our church. And more than a fourth of the people said that they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than out of joy and gratitude. Now, when I read that, what comes to my mind is, I think we as a church have misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. And I'm not going to say that that survey describes us, because it's not 100%. But I suspect that somewhere in the back of our minds, somewhere in our experience we resonate with some of those things. 
that being a follower of Christ, being a Christian, is primarily about following rules. It's about observing our obligations. It's about making sure that we don't offend God. I won't ask for a raise of hands about how many of us have wrestled with that or do wrestle with that, but we all know our hearts. And I'm convinced that the reason we have this skewed view of what it means to be a Christian is because we have a skewed view of who God is. And it's in many ways the same scenario that the Israelites are facing in the 30th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy that we just read. In this prophecy, it's, the, it's, it's talking to us about a time in Israel's history, another one of the times, when they have rebelled against God and they are facing, they are facing the, the consequences of that. And the consequences are that Assyria ha, is bearing down on them. Assyria is threatening them. Assyria, this, this nation that has buzzsawed its way through the ancient Near East, leaving carnage everywhere they go. They are a ruthless people. And the Israelites have heard all the stories. They know all about it. And now the Assyrians have set their sights on Israel. Israel can see the red dot of their weapons on their chest. And they're panicked. And, but instead of turning to God for help, they decide that their best option is Egypt. And so they are working at making a treaty with Egypt that Egypt will come and protect them. And it's in the context of that that we get this prophecy in chapter 30. Now, I kind of understand why Israel makes that choice. This is a very visible enemy coming at them. These are people with, with uh, weapons, real weapons, and they've heard all the stories of what those weapons can do and what the Assyrians are going to do. And when you're seeing, looking at a visible enemy, you want a visible solution, Right? I mean, you think about the things in our lives. We think about the real things that we face, things that are of our everyday lives that we wrestle with, we struggle with, the things that weigh in upon us. Maybe it's financial concerns, maybe it's something to do with relationships, maybe it's something to do with work. Whatever the case may be, they are real visible problems and they are crushing us and the, our, our natural solution is to find a real visible solution to it. It's the most common thing in the world. The problem is not that Israel is looking for a visible solution. The problem is that they don't think God is a visible solution. And that's our problem. We, the problem isn't that we might work hard at trying to find the solution or think through things or process things in order to find a wise solution to the problems we're facing. I think God expects us to work at finding solutions. The problem is that we think God isn't a part of being a viable solution. We don't see God as our first solution. We don't see that, that what we may do to help bring an end to the problem or to, to make it, to get a solution, that God has much to do with that. And so Israel is in essence rejecting God. And they are saying, God, you're fine in the temple. You're fine when we, when we read the Torah. You're fine when we pray. But what we really want is a better solution. And we think Egypt is that solution. And you and I say, God, you're fine when you're in church. We're at church. 
and we're fine when we're having our devotions. But when it comes to the real stuff of life, we need some real solutions. Now, we would expect that God would say to Israel, fine, you're on your own. And he does say to them, this is going to get bad before it's going to get better. In fact, if, if you want to trust in Egypt and you want to trust in human solutions, then go right ahead. Just know that what's going to happen is not going to be pretty. And we would expect God to say to them, not only that, but look, you know what? I'm done with you. This has happened way too many times. I'm finished. But you get to verse 15, and rather than rejecting Israel for rejecting him, God keeps offering them grace. He says in verse 15, even after all the warnings, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. He wants to make sure they understand who is speaking here. The God who is sovereign over all things, including the Assyrian army, including the Egyptian army, your lives, the sovereign Lord, the one who rescued you from Egypt, the one who's done all these amazing things for you, this is what he says to you. Only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. Now, the word returning is sometimes, in some translations, it, it's, uh, it comes out as repenting. Only in repentance and rest. But the word actually at its root can easily mean to sit. Only those who sit with God. It is the word that's used by Moses when the Israelites have come out of Egypt and they are on the banks of the Red Sea and they now have nowhere to go. They are stuck the sea in front of them, and all of a sudden they realize that the Egyptian army that was left in shambles has collected itself and is coming after them. And they're mad, as you might well imagine. And they have the Red Sea in front of them, they have the Egyptian army behind them, and they are panicked. And they come to Moses and say, what are you going to do about this? We knew this was a mistake from the very beginning. Why did we listen to you? You can hear it. Same things that we often say. And Moses says... Sit here and watch God rescue you. Sit here. Stand still and watch the Lord rescue you. And this is what God is saying to Israel. The Assyrian army is bearing down on them and he says, sit still. Trust me. I've got this. Rest in me. Wait for me. Do you believe that I can handle this? Let's see. Trust me. It's hard to rest. It's hard to wait for God. It's hard to sit still when things are swirling around us. I mean, we don't like waiting to begin with. I debated starting today's sermon by letting the group finish their song and just sort of not doing anything for a couple of minutes and having, watching everyone panic as to what happened. We don't like to wait. We don't like to sit still. 
We, to us, that feels like a waste of time. That feels like nothing is happening. It feels unproductive. It, it feels insignificant. It feels like nothing good is coming from that. And that's one of our struggles with prayer in general, is that we feel like it's unproductive. Because we're all about productivity. That's how we be- measure success, right? I mean, I'm a checklist person. I love check. I love lists, and I love checking things off lists and crossing things off lists. And and if you were to look at my daily outlook, it would. Ha- I use the task list all the time. And sometimes I do something that I didn't have written down, so I write it down so I can cross it off. I'm telling you more than you probably want to know. But I, I like lists. It feels productive to be able to do that. And, and we like to feel productive, right? We like to think that we're accomplishing things. We get to the end of the day and it feels good to see what we've done and to be able to mark what we've done. And quite frankly, prayer is not one of those things. You can't look back and say, other than, I prayed for an hour today. But often it's hard to see that as being productive or be, as being successful. It's Israel's problem. It's the church's problem through the centuries. It's still our problem to be able to see it that way. And especially, that just gets magnified when we start talking about resting in prayer and waiting in prayer and listening in prayer. It's hard. It feels like we're not doing anything. It feels like, quite frankly, sometimes it's a waste of time. And when all of the world is pushing in around us, it feels even more like a waste of time, even more be unproductive, because we're getting squeezed more and more and more. Things feel out of control. We don't know what to do next. We don't know which way to turn. We're trying to figure it out. And all the while, Scripture is saying to us, sit here, trust Wait, rest. And we find that hard. I read something recently that, that, that talked about how we have given up the gift of boredom. Now, we don't typically see boredom as a gift, which is why we've given it up. But the, the author of this article was talking about how boredom is really a gift. But in our culture, we do everything we can to prevent being bored. We have electronic devices on all the time. We have something going on all the time. We're checking them. We're rechecking them. We're re-rechecking them. We're looking at things. We're doing something. We always want to have activity. We always want to be busy. We always want to have noise around us. Because in many ways, the worst thing we can think of is to be bored. And we'll do everything possible to avoid being bored. And then we wonder why we miss so much of life. Actually, being bored is a gift. So much creativity has arisen out of people being bored. If you watch little children and you just let them be, it's when they're bored that they start getting creative. Right? Now, maybe that creativity isn't what you want, But they start building things, they start making things, they start getting into things. But they're they're experiencing things. But if we, you know, the fact that they don't do that if they're always being occupied. And you and I don't either. And the reason we don't like being bored is because we don't like silence. 
And we don't like listening. And we don't like waiting. And we don't like just sitting. In fact, one of the, one of the words we love to use, and we actually wear it as a badge of honor most of the time, is that we're really good at multitasking. We don't just do one thing. We, we pride ourselves in doing two, three, four, five things at the same time. And it's trying, it, it, it's not always bad. We're just trying to be more and more productive. And being productive isn't a bad thing. But productivity should come out of thinking and should come out of listening. And especially when it comes to thinking about God. And the re- what happens when we don't take time to listen, take time to wait, take time to think, take time to rest and to sit with God. What happens is we start, we have a hard time feeling like we can trust God because we don't really know God. At the end of Isaiah chapter 40, Israel is again in a difficult spot and they're crying out to God. They're accusing God of not caring for them. God, you're not doing anything for us. You're not helping us. You're not here for us. And and the prophet says, why do you say, O Israel, that your way is forgotten by the Lord? Why do you say, O Israel, that God doesn't care about you? Do you not know? Have you not heard who God is? And it's a rhetorical question because, quite frankly, they haven't been listening. They haven't been listening. And because they don't listen, because they don't sit and wait and rest with God in prayer, because they don't see that as a gift, they don't really know who God is. And when you don't know who God is, the only thing you can really do is rely on yourself or rely on other human beings, or rely on something we can manufacture. All we can rely on is our productivity. And so in Psalm 46, as it talks about all the turmoil and the upheaval and the struggles of life, what is the psalmist's solution? Be still and know that I am God. It's not a coincidence that being still is connected to knowing God. That's how we know God. Because without being still, without contemplating and thinking and listening, we miss God at work. It's not that our our being still allows God to work. It's just that we aren't seeing Him. We're missing Him. And when we miss God at work, we don't trust God. We don't really believe that God is who He says He is. It is only when we take time to listen, to think, to rest, to wait, that we begin to see who God is. Our eyes are opened. And not just that we know God in our minds, but we know God experientially. I think back to the, the, the life story of John Wesley. John Wesley grew up in the church. I think John Wesley was always had a desire to follow Christ and to be a follower of Christ. He just wrestled with understanding that. And, and he, he and his, his best, closest friends formed this club where they did all of these spiritual disciplines. And they worked hard at them and they worked at them over and over again. And, it was, it was, and they believed that if they just did enough of this, then they would really know who God was. And he became a missionary to America and that was a total failure. And he went back to England and on May 24, 1738, he wrote this in his journal about that night. 
In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. What I find fascinating about that is that Wesley went unwillingly. He didn't have time in his schedule to go sit and listen. And I could almost hear the echo of what he was thinking in our words. I don't have time for this. I've got too much to do. Even good things to do. I've got too many people to share the gospel with. I've got, there are too many souls to save. There are too many needs out there. There's too much to be done. I don't have time to sit and listen, to wait on God, to rest in God. But it was only when he did that the revelation came. This is not a call to stop working for the gospel. This is not a call to stop being agents of healing and grace in the world. It is a call to understand that we can only be agents of healing and grace in the world if we truly begin to understand who God is. And he can only know who God is by listening to God and resting in God and sitting with God and waiting for God. What I find fascinating is that when you get to verse 18, we discover that Isaiah says, in essence this, when you begin to know who God is, you feel fortunate to be able to wait for God's help. When you begin to know who God is, then you feel you actually feel fortunate that you can wait on God to come to your rescue in his time and in his way. And waiting on God no longer feels like a curse. It feels like a blessing. And so he says that the Lord must wait for you to come to him so you can show you his love and compassion. We don't see it unless, we, unless we're open to it. For the Lord is a faithful God. Faithfulness is not something God does. Faithfulness is who God is. God cannot not be faithful. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful. You and I, we choose to be faithful. It is the DNA of who God is. It's sort of like the color of our eyes. I mean, we didn't choose the color of our eyes. They're just, we're just born with those colors. God doesn't choose to be faithful. It is who he is. He is always, always faithful. And when we begin to understand that, we start realizing that waiting on God, trusting God, is the greatest thing in the world. Because we are waiting, trusting, listening, resting in the God who is good and compassionate and faithful and loving and full of grace and mercy and who wants only what is best for us. We can count on him every time without exception. And even God's judgment looks different. And so often we think of God's judgment as the worst thing in the world. We think, man, 
The last thing you want is to experience the wrath of God. The last thing you want is to be in a place where you get the judgment of God. And it is certainly something that ought to wake us up. But the reality is, we sometimes describe the judgment of God as if it's vindictive and sinister. No, that's our judgment. Our judgment is vindictive and sinister, not God's. God's judgment is as much a part of his love as grace is. That's why in 1 Chronicles 21, David, who grievously sins against God by taking the census, and I don't claim to understand all the ramifications of what's going on there, but when David is confronted with it, he knows, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I did it intentionally. It was, some, it was an arrogant act. And so the consequences of this are God says to him, I'm going to give you three choices. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of being attacked by your enemies. Or you can have three days of my angel coming and, and bringing a plague to, to Jerusalem. And I think most people would say, uh, give me either the famine or the enemies, but not God's judgment. But immediately David says, oh man, I would much rather fall into the hands of God than my enemies. Because I know who God is. And even though it's God's judgment, he is gracious and merciful. Even though David sins, he knows who God is because he spent time with God, listening to God, experiencing God. And I think this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. H.J. Swoboda says that resting, the freedom to rest, is one of the most profound ways we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Because we are stepping back and saying, it's not about what I can do, it's about what God can do. It's about knowing God, it's about experiencing God, it's about trusting God, sitting with God, listening to God, being with God. Because I'm not in control, He is. And understanding that gives us an understanding of God so that we now begin to change how we view what it means to be a Christian. That it's not about rules. It's not about knowing the right things, as important as that is. It's about being open to God. It's about resting in God and knowing God. And when we know God because we have listened and waited and trusted God, then what we do, we do out of joy. Not out of obligation. And everything we learn just keeps turning us back to who God is and creating an openness in our hearts for who God is. And it fills us with a sense of gratitude. You know, we come to this table is called the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving. It's because it is a table of gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And when we come to this table, yes, we come acknowledging our sin, but we also come acknowledging what God has done for us. And we come to this table out of gratitude and thanksgiving because we have gotten a glimpse of the goodness of God. Because we've sat with God. We've been still before God and we've rested in God and we've waited in God in quietness and trust. We have found strength.
And just like taking Sabbath is not something people do without thinking, resting in God is not something we do without thinking. It's always a choice we make. It's something we do intentionally to sit, to listen, to rest, to wait, to trust. And the more we do that, the more we begin to understand who God is. And the more we begin to understand who God is, the more we want God and His work in our lives. So as we prepare for communion, we're going to take 60 seconds, maybe a little bit more, just in silence. To let God speak into our hearts. To listen to God. To be quiet before God. And whether God says anything to us or not is really not the point. It is just taking the time to open our minds and our hearts and to wait before Him and to even find joy in resting. Father, thank you for loving us, wanting us, wanting us to know you. Thank you for the gift of resting in you, sitting with you. Lord, help us to find freedom in this gift. As we prepare to come to this table today, we pray that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing upon these gifts. 
and in the bread and the cup, we would find food for our souls and that we would once again see the greatness of who you are in love and compassion and justice and truth and mercy and grace. We thank you, Father, for all of your gifts. We thank you for who you are. Speak into our lives as we rest in you. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. And again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Receiving communion this morning by the mode of intinction, which means to dip in. As you're released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. Altar rail is always open if you want to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we do have a tray of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let us know. And I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here. Just let me know if you would like those as you come forward. I always like to mention we practice open communion to Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time that you have ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, then come. Receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon Thee, and Thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, faster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved, no what wealth of grace is thine, no uncertainty of promise. And have made it mine Jesus, I am resting, resting. 
joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus. I behold thee as thou art, and thy love so pure, so blameless, satisfies my heart, satisfies its deepest longings, meets supplies its every need, compasseth me round with blessings, thine is love indeed, Jesus I joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee. Resting my Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face. Keep me ever trusting, resting, fill me with thy grace. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou your God. I go before you now. I stand beside you. I'm all around you. Though you feel I'm far away, I'm closer than your breath. I am with
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.